Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Jason Lopez. Thanks for tuning in. It's great to be back together. It's been a been a week, a hectic week on this end. Um, Jason, I know you had a trip that you finished up, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But Mike, what have you been up to? Trying to get these podcasts set up so that we can run them on YouTube. Make sure you go back and take a look at those because Mike and Missy, Missy's always working hard. They've been, the two of them have been uh, working on getting these edits put together so that you're not seeing just what we're talking about. You're not seeing just the talking heads, but you're also seeing the images that we were, that we're discussing, the shooting formats that we're discussing, those types of things to help kind of give you a visual to go along with the audio podcast format. Jason, besides finishing up the big trip, you've been back to work, but I'll just jump right into it. How how did the end of it go? So the last day was actually a really productive one, especially for only having a half a day to, to do any shooting. Um, as I mentioned in the last podcast, I was hoping to be out to the Pebble Creek area by or, you know, by sunrise. Um, I actually was able to get up and be out there by that time. Um, I didn't see anything really to start off the day, and the day ended up being kind of a, another one of those bluebird days, which is you know not necessarily what you're looking for after that that early morning light goes away. Um, so I, I, I went ahead and did my rounds. I'd actually caught um, I caught um, a, a hint came along through checking my phone that there was some wolf activity at the north gate. And some of the comments were of the nature that this could be like very close to the north gate. So I whipped over to the side of the road and I contacted a very good friend of mine who's always in the know and asked her to do some checking for me. And she told me very quickly back um, that I needed to get to the North Gate. <laughs> get so, your butt up here. Hold on, hold on, hold on a sec. You're in Yellowstone, so uh, you're at Pebble Creek when you're doing all this. Does your phone work out there? Let me clarify. So I, I get service through certain areas, right? And most people do. And there's a couple areas, one by Slough Creek and one there by Little America, that both have some pretty good service where you can actually – you know, check some, you know, you get some internet service, not just texting. When I stopped there, I had checked it and I can't remember what spurred me on to the fact that these wolves were at the gate, but I caught wind of it somehow. I can't remember if it was a text or what, but anyways, that's how I was able to get a hold of Julie and get her to give me some information. And she's, she was awesome. She just right on it. She literally said, hold. And within five seconds, I had a text back saying, get to the North gate. So <laughs> I, I'm in little America, which is an easy hour from the North gate. And I'm just thinking, man, there was, what it was, was there is the whole pack, the whole Wapiti pack was on a carcass. Um, the main pack was up in the tree line, but the, there was five wolves that were down low on this carcass. Now at this time, I have no idea how close they are. I know that they're right at the North gate and I know that there's five wolves down there feeding on the carcass. So I hightail it safely, of course. Okay, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. <laughs> okay, okay. This is complete bull crap because <laughs> I thought when you said I had a good last day, it was on the tail end of 
you know, I haven't seen squat. So I thought, oh, cool. He got into some Fox. Well, there was no hint me. given that there was five freaking wolves on the side <laughs> of the road. Well, just bear with me. Bear with me. <laughs> um, so, so I hurried over to the North gate. I, I got to, it was actually just the first pullout as you enter the North gate. And there, there was wolves. I could see them, but they weren't nearly as close as I had been led to believe. So, it was cool to see them. Um, there really wasn't even, in my opinion, a video opportunity. They were a little too far out. They were probably 300 yards out. And I could see the wolves at the, the skyline or up, up along the tree line with my, my binoculars. Um, and they were actually moving away from the carcass by the time I'd gotten there. But needless to say, it was still a pretty, you know, interesting encounter. And I spent, you know, a good two hours of my day checking that lead out, which it would have been worth it if they had been right by the road, like you said, Ron. So that still didn't pan out. It was still cool to see the wolves. I turned around. I talked to Julie while I was there because I had some service and explained to her what was going on and then headed back into the park. And I made my route and I went back clear up to Pit Pebble Creek. And by this time, it's it's getting like to be 11 o'clock and I'm kind of like, you know, getting bummed. The clouds are starting to kind of roll in. I still haven't seen a fox, right? You know, and this is where I'm supposed to be seeing the foxes in Pebble Creek. So I decided I was just going to take a walk um, at Pebble Creek at the bathrooms. There's a, a, a ski trail that goes back in there a ways. So I didn't have my skis or um, I don't even have skis. So I can't say I didn't have my skis. I didn't have skis and I didn't have my snowshoes because I do have snowshoes. But I, you know, I knew that if I stayed on that two track of the skis that, that you know, it's smashed down enough, it should be able to hold me. Because um, I got off trail a couple times and it was way steep snow. So I just started to walk down that trail with my camera and I got my, my D850 with my 1.4 and my 500 and my tripod. And I just headed out there just to go for a walk. Well, I got back in there a ways and I, you know, I really wasn't seeing much. I had seen a little, little bit of fresh sign. Um, but, you know, I just figured, ah, well, this is nice. It was a beautiful day. I turned around and started walking back to the car. And sure enough, out of the corner of my eye, I see this fox doing his, do, making his rounds. So I tried to get myself in position. I was, I was on the wrong side of him from a light standpoint. So I knew I needed to hurry and get ahead of him, not ahead of him. He was actually coming towards me. So I just slowly kept on my way. And, you know, those foxes, they don't, they, they, they're so used to people. They don't even really care that you're there. So he, he looked at me a couple of times and just kept doing his thing. And I walked by him. And I just turned around, I set my tripod up and I stood there and waited and ended up having, you know, a, a pretty decent shoot with this fox, just him and I. It was another soul around, but pretty, pretty awesome experience. Great encounter. Um, had a couple of, you know, more scenic shots with the fox in it because he was a ways off at first. And then as I tried to predict, you know, the direction he was going, he got to the point where he got to be some full frame. And it was just really cool because all whiteout conditions, no tracks in the snow at all. And this beautiful red fox, you know, going across in front of me, looking at me, giving me the look and the whole nine yards. So pretty, pretty cool encounter, a pretty cool way to end the trip. Um, and then I just, you know, hiked back to the car and packed up all my stuff and sat in the car and was like, see, persistence pays. I tell you. <laughs> was he mousing or what was he doing? What was that fox yeah, he, doing? He was mousing. He was looking for food. Um, a couple times, the problem is the snow's so deep that 
he couldn't actually mouse, right? Like where they usually do their big dive. That would have been amazing if I'd have been able to get that. Um, but he was digging, so he'd dig a little bit. Um, and I didn't get any good stuff of him digging because what he was doing is the snow's so deep, he was actually going up to the base of the trees and stuff and the base of logs, and he was digging in those areas because um, the snow's a little bit less deep there, and that's where the critters probably that he's looking for are hanging out more than likely too. So, but yeah, a couple times I got off that track as I was getting excited and turned around and, you know, I was in this up to snow waist deep pretty quick. Um, so, but yeah, what, what an awesome encounter. I mean, what a way to end the trip, right? That is awesome. Sure. And it is totally right. The last time I did that, when I was walking on those tracks and the minute you get off, you're up to your waist, you know, it depends yep. every year, but I mean, it's incredible. And you, the last thing you want to do is run up against the Buffalo coming the other way on those, those trails, right? <laughs> Because they're going to yeah. walk down that same trail, too. Yep, yep. I've actually had a standoff with a bison on one of those trails before. And it's one of those moments where it's like, no, you win. I just need to give me some time to get out of your way. <laughs> you <know? laughs> yep. The time that I did it, it was like a standoff, just like you said. And that bison was not going to move. And I was hoping he was going to move because I knew the minute I stepped off the trail. And it's hard. It's like you said, give me a minute because you – even to get two or three steps off your, it's a lot of work. And I got as far as I thought I could, you know, he would be comfortable or it, the bison would be comfortable. Yeah. yeah. And, but it's only what, three, four, five feet away. And he sure enough, he, <laughs> once he felt I was off far enough, man, he just came walking right by like no big deal, but yeah, yep. they're so big that it's, it's, uh, it gets your blood. It's pumping. intimidating. It is. Oh yeah. 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 They're huge. I mean, cause they're, they're yeah, I think those issues when they go, those encounters when they go bad is generally somebody that just doesn't pay attention to body language, doesn't understand, you know, they're, they're pushing it with the critter and those, those bison, they don't want to hurt you. They don't want any part of you. They just want you to get out of their way and, you know, let them use the path that they're using. And every, every time, every encounter I've ever had has never gone awry. And I think it's all about just giving them their space and, you know, letting them do their thing. You know, if you do that, in my opinion, you're not going to have any problems. I agree. So you sent on the last podcast when I was editing and putting in images, Missy edited all the audio. And then I went in and I was adding these images. <laughs> I didn't add. You had sent footage of a fox on that carcass that you had found. But yes. I didn't put that in because I thought, well, maybe that's the nugget that he was going to tell us about. So, oh. <laughs> but that fox wasn't the same fox that you were shooting. So, so let me back up actually to, to, to correct my story a little bit. Um, that fox was actually on that carcass that morning. So I, I didn't mean to lie, but I lied. Um, I did see, <laughs> I did see that fox. So it was the same day, same day. I did see that fox that morning. Um, but it was, it was a situation where I knew I wasn't going to get good photos, but I did get some pretty cool video. Yeah, um, you did. I thought of, of that Fox playing around in that carcass and what I miss. And this is, I was going to tell you, <laughs> this will be a good little add to the story as I'm sitting there, there's nobody around the coyotes on that carcass, which you saw in the last preview or episode. And the Fox came in, the Fox was waiting and I couldn't get them both in frame. So the Fox was waiting. The Fox finally came in when the coyote went off. And I could see it unfolding because the coyote was starting to come back. And I really wanted to get that interaction of the coyote coming in and the fox behavior. But I was too busy messing around with settings and trying to get things set up and moving my camera. And, of course, I missed it. You know, it was just like, oh, man, because it, it would have been a cool little clip of that 
coyote coming in, the fox freaking out and taking off. And uh, but yeah, I, I missed it. So, <laughs> so when you were shooting that video, did you use a neutral density filter? Is that part of that futzing around, or were you just just trying to set the settings to work best for video? I was actually trying to get the head set up. I had I actually had just my um, my gimbal, my Wimberly head. So I didn't have my video head, which I do have as well, um, but I didn't have it with me. So I was using my 500 with my D850 and the 1.4 so I could get the extra reach. And then obviously it crops when you go into video mode. So that's why it was pretty tight. That was, you know, a good 100 yards away um, from where I was standing. But what I was trying to do is get everything, to get the frame right to be able to capture the coyote coming in and everything. And it, it all happened so fast that I was still moving things when that all went down. So that's why. That speaks to the difficulty of shooting video. It's just, there's so much and it's gotta be so right on, you know, stills there's, especially if you're going no tripod and you're just handheld and you just go, you can capture so much so fast, but for video, it's just getting everything ready. Just takes a little bit and you just hope that it works. Yeah. I think you, you have to have even more foresight than with a photograph. That's was what I'm learning, you know? Yeah, so. absolutely do. And a gimbal is probably a, a ball head is almost doable. If you just keep it almost tight, you can almost use a ball head and get away with it. But a gimbal is, is next to impossible to get good video. And, you know, once you get it locked down, you're fine yeah. But to be able to use it for any kind of motion at all is almost impossible to do. Is your video head big enough to handle your 500 with the one four and the body, or did you just have your, you just didn't have it set up? Yeah, I just didn't have it with me, which was dumb. I mean, I actually, most of the time now when I get out a tripod, I generally get out my video head because I've got a Miller video head that I bought um, for this very reason. As I, you know, as I spend more and more time in the field, like you guys have talked about it multiple times, but I've taken some of the advice you guys have talked about and I've really tried to just, if I'm out there, why not take five minutes of video, take, you know, a bunch of 10, 15 minute clips or sorry, 15, 15 second clips. You know, I'm there. Why not get the video while I'm there? Now I've got, you know, I've got a lot to learn. I need to get some, some filters and some things like you mentioned, Mike, because right now, if I do that and it's daytime, I'm cranking my aperture up, you know, and, and sometimes my shutter speed more than I'd like, especially for video. So, but there's, there's also, you know, when something's going down, you know, it's, it's better to just get the video, you know, and, and there may be, there may be some imperfections and things you could have done better, but in my opinion, it's better to have it than to not have at it at least all. You got it. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, so I'm kind of stuck on, this is Jason's third podcast and he's already <laughs> lying to us. <laughs> Uh, well, get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> when you said north, not to jump around here, but when you said north entrance, that's the entrance that has the big arch, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. The wolves are there, so they're basically between Mammoth and Gardner. Yes, they were between Mammoth and Gardner because they were actually in the park, but they were just inside the park, just past the the north entrance there, the guard station entrance. So was it a bison carcass or was it an elk up there? You know, I think it was an elk. I couldn't tell for sure. But the other thing that goes on, and I don't, I think we talked about it last time a little bit, but that this, that time of year, they're doing a lot of those bison hunts The that the local tribes and that can come in and, and cull the herd and try to take some, you know, some game meat home for their families. 
Um, and I and I thought maybe it would be, you know, there'd be some gut piles or something that maybe the, the wolves were hitting. But that wasn't the case. It was definitely a carcass. And I think now the rules have changed a lot on that, where they have to take a lot of the body parts and the, you know, the with them. They can't leave a lot of the parts. They can leave the gut pile, but they can't leave a lot of the parts. Um, so I think that's changed because a lot of times the the wolves and that would come out of the park and start eat, hitting those carcasses. And I think it was causing some unnatural behavior that, you know, the, the park wasn't really wanting to have happen. So, right. so they, you know, they just continue to ebb and flow and change their policies and that to try to accomplish what's best for everybody. Right. And I think they do a pretty good job of managing those things in my opinion. But That is a good rundown on that trip. And it was super fun to edit what you had got and the images that you just to revisit that last podcast, those bison images were cool. The ones where you had them walking mm-hmm. up and over that ridge or, you know, coming over that hill towards you, that was pretty awesome. And it was hard to know. There was a couple in there. I wasn't <laughs> sure if it was that same day or another day where you shot. There were some that were obviously shot another day, but there were a couple in there where you had some really tight shots and, like, two bison were almost interacting where a big bull had his head tilted. That was a super cool shot. Yeah, thank you. Thank um, uh, Yeah, a couple of those that you were actually talking about was, I think we mentioned it on the other podcast, actually. Um, and it was when that there was a bull, a young bull that was harassing that cow. And it was behavior that I had, hadn't seen that time of year. And he was acting almost ruddy to the point where he was just, he was running her up and down the road. He was diving her into the snow. He was, he just would not leave her alone. And so that's that was some of the images I captured from that encounter, which was you know a couple of weeks prior when I had my daughter with me. That light was super cool. And we talked about exposure last week. And one of the things that, in looking at those images, because I hadn't seen them until I saw the the YouTube video, and looking at some of those images, obviously, it was a scene that was pretty deep. Run down for for our listeners your thought process when you're looking at you know bison strung out, not just all lined up in one focal plane but what goes through your mind exposure wise when you're looking at that deep deep scene that you're trying to you're trying to maintain focal or focus on yeah yeah that was real tough and i actually blew that i mean i edited that one photo um but it i actually i wasn't (laughs) so in a photo like that my experience is at least what pleases my eye is that that front that front critter is the most in focus and then everything else kind of fades, right? Um, and I actually missed it. I actually, I think the second bison in that photo was the one that was the most in focus. The front one was a little bit out of focus and the rest tapered off. But you're right. And that just unfolded quickly. If I'd have been doing it right, I would have cranked my aperture up as far as I could. And I'd have backed up some as if I could. In that situation, I couldn't have. But I'd have tried to get more separation and I would have tried to crank my aperture up and sacrifice some of my other settings in order to be able to get that depth of fill. And I still think it can be a cool image, but I, I'm in that image itself, I actually am kind of bummed that I missed it. I really should have had that front bison the most in focus. And I, I know it's all personal preference and sure. there's rules and all those things, right? But for my eye, what pleases me the most is I really wish I'd have got that, you know, that front bison in, in the most focus. But. So is this the image that has the three bison in it, or is this the image that has that long line of them? This, the image I'm talking about is the one that has the long line in them. I don't know if that's the one wrong. Yeah, that's, about that's the one yeah. I was discussing, yeah. Yeah. And I think that brings up another good point because, you know, and my mentor used to say this all the time, F8 is not F8, it's not F8, it's not F8. 
Yeah. So if you're if you're close up to something, F8 is a lot shallower than if you're 100 yards away. Yep. yep. You know, if you're 100 yards away, shoot it at five six. You may have multiple animals, even though they're strung out like that, yeah. in focus. But yeah, if if they get close, it's it's a lot shallower depth of field. So as you as you work that, and you you know that I like your comment about creating some space because you're going to get more in focus. So you're backing up and increasing your focal plane basically is what you're doing. And that's a, that's a real good point. So if you don't want to shoot it any more closed down than what it's at, use your feet, you know, and that can be done both ways. You can zoom with your feet or you can increase your focal plane with your feet just by backing up. I like that point. Was that with your 500 or was that with your two to six? That was with my two to six. Um, and I, you know, everything, like I said, it's one of those where I saw it and I was like, oh, that's That could be a cool shot. And I just, it wasn't going to last because they were on the move, you know, and I didn't have a lot of options to do much else. So I, you know, it was one of those jump out, grab the shot, do the best I could with what I had. And then it was over because I just right place, right time. But, you know, but the point's valid still, right? I mean, if you have the time, then, you know, create that separation and, and there's actually calculations you can learn. <laughs> I don't know them well enough yet. I really wish I did because you can actually understand what your focal plane is at F8 at certain distances. Mm -hmm. And if you know that in your mind, you can actually be a lot better off and know that what your focal plane is at F15 or whatever. Um, you can you can do a lot less guesswork, right? You can just do what you got to do to hit the shot. But I don't. I just kind of know from experience and from what I've seen in my images and building that mental database like we talk about of what I kind of need to do to try to get more of the animals in focus. But. So I had a conversation with a photographer the other day. She actually lives right across the street. And we got into this big conversation where when she was assisting 25 years ago, all these pros were like, okay, well, you just got to assist long enough to learn your craft, learn the craft from a pro. And then you buy your Hasselblad or you buy that camera you're going to use and you're done buying stuff. So you could learn that kind of stuff. If you're using that same camera and your same suite of lenses, let's say you have five lenses, you can learn that stuff that you're talking about, Jason. Nowadays, the equipment changes so fast and we all buy different cameras way more frequently than anybody did 20 years ago. So learning that's one thing. And then also your situation in Yellowstone is you're shooting Nikon, you're shooting Sony, you've got, I don't know, it'd just be so hard to, unless you're just a student of that one system, it's, it would be hard to know, okay, I'm using the two to six. I know my focal plane is going to be this distance at a hundred. I mean, I don't, I think it's almost impossible to, to really, I mean, unless you're using that same thing day in and day out over and over and you just got it dialed in for me, I guess it would be really hard to, on top of knowing all the software, on top of knowing all this other stuff, it's like, I don't, my brain is not big enough for all that. <laughs> yeah, yours and mine both, trust me. Yeah. <laughs> it is something to think about. And, you know, I mean, there's something to be said for just using that one body and that one lens and making it work. Yeah, well, and I think just understanding that, like, you know, Ron said, you can separate, you can get your focal plane bigger by creating separation you know, just knowing that and then doing the best you can with your aperture and, you know, sacrificing some of their settings, that that's probably enough to know. If you just know those basics, then 
you know what you got to do to try to get more focal plane um, for your shot. And that's where with the landscape guys, it's awesome, right? Because it's not a moving target and it's not something that happens on the spur of the moment. You know, for you, like you said, I mean, that was something that was going to happen and it was quickly going to happen and quickly be done. So you really don't have that time to, to, you just got to shoot from where you're at. And for the landscape guys, they've got an app for that. <laughs> Seriously, you just pop it in photo pills. It, it calculates your hyper, hyperfocal distance based on your camera, your lens, and the distance from the subject tells you what aperture you need to be at to get everything in focus calculates it out by inches and you're good to go it's a little tougher to use that kind of an app with wildlife that are closing the <laughs> closing the distance on you right so if you knew that there was a coyote walking the same trail every day i mean that might be some way you could do it but i mean the wildlife is just such yeah. a wild card you just don't know right in the youtube version of this thing i will add all those pictures some of the pictures we talked about Again, I'll add those again, and then super excited to see what you send over for the Fox stuff. And I'm sure we'll see him on your Instagram. Yeah, at some point. I'm not really good about posting current stuff on there, but I try, I'll try. i try to do better with that. But. <laughs> so let's move into pro tips, and I think what we discussed earlier, my pro tip I'll do last because I think it'll turn into a discussion topic. Maybe not that long, but it's something that would be fun to talk about as far as taking it from a tip to a topic to talk about. But what do you have for us, Ron, as far as a pro tip for today? My pro tip is, once again, I do this once in a while. What did Ron do now segment? <laughs> um, check your gear. And in particular, in your camera bag or your backpack, make sure you check your zippers. Make sure there are no obstructions in the zipper. Because those suckers will come flying open, <laughs> and you will need to find. I wish you could all see Missy right now, because she's about to swallow her tongue, <laughs> sitting there trying to take notes on this episode. But I am pretty sure that I zipped up like a corner of my uh, my camera strap in the zipper. Because I picked that thing up and it blew apart and my camera came flying out. So I get to buy a new lens hood for my 70 to 200. And I'm very, very fortunate that that's all I get to buy. Uh, because it definitely could have done some damage. If I didn't still have the lens hood on from the shoot I was on, still did, you know, didn't have it turned around backwards, I'd, I may have been paying my deductible and buying a whole new lens. So walk so, us through this again. You you zip the strap. So up. I had a camera strap on the camera, right? And typically I take that sucker off before I put the camera away and, and just put the strap in whatever duffel bag that I have. Because it does take up a little bit more space in there. And with the bag that I was using, it's got enough space for the seventy to two hundred and the the eight fifty with the battery grip, but not much more than that. So as I zipped it up, I didn't realize, you know, I kind of had a, because it's a tight fit, I had to push the two sides together. And so I was focusing on that corner of the camera where I had to push my bag together. And I didn't see that down below that, there was part of the strap that was zipped up. And the only way that I know this is because when the rest of the zipper blew open 
the strap, the corner of the strap was still stuck on the bottom end of the zipper. So I know for absolute fact that that's what happened. It wasn't a malfunction on the bags part. It was my obstruction. So make sure you're being careful with your camera straps. If you're putting them in your bag, don't let anything get zipped up in the zipper because it could end up costing you a trip if that happened at the wrong time. Can I just add to that? Please do. I hope you have a similar story. I do. <laughs> Only I didn't zip anything up. But, you know, we get excited. We're out in the field, right? So I was super excited. You, I happen to be using one of these square, like, carry-on style bags. And a lot of times I'll just set it in the back seat. And it's got a big zipper on the front. And you just flip that lid open. And you quickly got access to all your stuff. What's happened to me, it only happened once bad, but it's happened more than that, is you'll be out in the morning, you'll unzip it, leave it unzipped, and you got, you're grabbing your stuff out of there all day, and then when you get back to wherever you're going, you pull the bag out and you forget to zip it. And just like what you did, one day I pulled that bag out and I went to fling it over my shoulder, and both bodies just went flying out and landed on concrete, and I was buying new bodies at that point just because they but they both were destroyed the lens mount broke because they both mm -hmm. had lenses on it so yeah i mean that you can't now i don't do it well after that happened now i before i ever pick up a bag i'm always checking that zipper just because of that one lesson but it's so easy to do and it's easy to do especially when you're excited you know when something's happening and you just don't even remember oh you know it's all second nature just to get out quickly unzip and grab your camera and shoot something but you don't really remember to put it all away before you grab it and go for the next thing so no it's yeah. happened to everybody i'm sure but it's a good tip to good thing to stay on top of <laughs> i i quickly decided that the and then the sound of crumpling plastic is about the worst sound a photographer can hear because you know exactly what just happened Zipper just ripped and we're done. So, yeah, I, I lucked out, to be honest. How about you, Jason? Get Let's get off this topic. <laughs> well, I don't have a lot of room to talk. I'm the guy that dropped my Nikon D810 and my 2 to 500 on the concrete, right? And I can't blame it on a bag or a zipper or anything. So, <laughs> Did it just fall but, out of your hands or fall off a seat or what happened? I was wearing my gloves and I stepped out of my car and I had it in my hand off by the foot. And as I'd come out of the car, it just slipped right out of my hand. So, yeah, it's, I've got it's when I hold it by the foot, because I've had I've had close calls like that. I've gotten in the habit of either hooking my thumb or my pinky or my index finger all the way around it. So that baby's laced in there because it it does get slick, especially, you know, with a glove on with just the foot of the camera or just the foot of the lens, excuse me. It slides yeah. out of there pretty easy at times. So, so where was this pro tip in November, Ron? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that unfortunately is just one of those that I had to learn by experience. So, All right, Jason, what do you got for us? Well, I've got a little bit different one today. Um, and I've talked about this on my account before on my Instagram account. But this is just a, a trick I've learned, and I think it's ca actually kind of fun to do. 
Um, it's fun to do as you're learning to, your photography, and it's actually fun to see how you progress year after year. Um, one of the you guys talked about the slow season, the editing season a lot. And for me, as we talked, you know, I don't really have like an editing season necessarily. I try to, I actually really do try to stay on top of my editing after, shoot after shoot. And I'm not always successful, but I really try to do that. And that's just a little bit of an OCD thing for me. It drives me insane knowing I have images there I need to edit. But so when I get the slow time for me around Christmas time, the first part of the year, um, I always like to take and go back through my images for the year. And then I'll go on Nation's Photo Lab or Bay Photo or whatever. Pick your, pick your poison, Costco, whatever you want. Um, they all have different options. And I try to go through my images and just pick my favorite images from the year. And I try to go through all the main shoots I've done and just pick one or two images from. And, and this could be not just images that I've taken, but it also would include things like family trips that I've gone on and just things that I've done where I have images from. And I create myself a photo album. And what I've, I've been doing this now, this is the fourth year I've done it. And it's really kind of fun to go back and look through those things and see where your photography mind was at that time, what you thought were good images at that time, and, you know, how that's progressed year after year. Um, and I've actually got one here. It's not going to be really good. This is actually a pretty good size one. But, you know, I can just kind of flip through it real quick with just a couple of pages. But, you know, so... It's just kind of fun to go through and, you know, what are your favorite images? Why were those images important to you? And it's basically just scrapbooking, but you're doing it, you know, on the computer. Um, this is an example of, you know, Hawaii. My wife and my wife and my son, we went to Kauai in March last year. Uh, we did some whale watching, saw some, some monk seals, you know, just different critters. And, of course, you know, they got the chicken there. Can't have a trip to Kauai without a chicken. So, anyways. <laughs> So that's also, kind of, that's a hardback book. That's not just a photo album. That's like a nice little, like yeah, memorabilia yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And and the nice thing is, is that if you do it with the right companies, they'll save the profile. And if you ever, you know, have something happen, you can always have it reprinted. And um, the other thing with this is, you know, it's a lot of times that time of year, they're running specials where you can get, you know, 25 to 50% off. So it saves you some money to have them done that time of year. So just that's, I don't know if that's really a pro tip, but it's more just something that I've found useful to help me, you know, see how I progressed year after year from a photography standpoint. And it's a great keepsake, you know, friends like to see it. It's a great coffee table book. Um, my family likes to see it. My mom always wants a copy, you know, she's just being supportive of course, but you know, <laughs> but she she loves it she likes to flip through it and when people come over and visit they like to flip through it so so yeah just kind of a fun little thing i think that's a pro tip on a variety of levels i mean i think just having that retrospective type of look three or four years ago is pretty awesome because that's a good way to to see if you have improved or see what you've changed or see how you've grown or see if you've kept the same thought process also for the family part of it that is like I mean, those days don't come back. And I did a similar thing not too long ago where I, I don't know, I was editing pictures for something and I thought, you know what? How many people don't ever print a picture? And all they do is they have it on their phone or they have it just on the computer. They don't ever print pictures anymore. So I found a, several pictures of three or four of my buddies and I just... Send them to Costco, and you can go to Costco, and you can put in somebody else's address. So mm -hmm. I just sent these images, 
put in their address, didn't tell them they were showing up, and I just hit go. And, you know, I don't know, it was like 17. I just made them little prints. I didn't do anything crazy. But out of the blue, like a week and a half later, I'm getting emails saying, that was so cool. I mean, it was images that might have been three or four years worth of that person that I just printed and sent. And then I bet you $10 I'll show up at their house sometime over the next year and one or two of them will be stuck up on the fridge for everybody yeah. to see. And it's not just hidden away on your phone, which is kind of a shame for some of these things that, so I, I think it's a great, great idea. I mean, that is, I've never thought about it. We've done the books before, but it's always for a purpose, which yours is a purpose too. Ours is always for like some little project, but a mm -hmm. whole annual retrospect is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you used Bay Photo for that? Yeah, I've used uh, Nations Photo Lab in the past, and I used Bay Photo this last year. And like I said, they have different size offerings. They have different um, cover material offerings. They have different formats. They all have different, like, uh, scrapbooking tools, designs, and things like that. So I would just say go out and, you know, look at a few different ones and see kind of what you like. Um, I, I actually liked what I got from Bay Photo. I think this book's a little too big. Actually, I'm having a hard time finding a place on a bookshelf to put it. But uh, Coffee table. You know, I probably would go – Oh yeah, I, I'd probably go smaller. Years past, I've done a little smaller, and I think that works a little better. Um, but it's still – like you said, it's fun because it's a good way to get a lot of images in print that you can actually see that's not on your phone to your point. And I did, I'm telling you, when you get your images in print, it's just cool. There's something cool about seeing – what you created in print it's just different and it's actually kind of funny like wow this is that's kind of cool well wow, that looks really good in print you know and it's a good way i think to get an idea of how it might look if you decide to print those images at some other point on a larger format you know so mm -hmm. you'll know you'll have a good idea what it's going to look like in print so you can trust and say oh yeah that, that one should print no problem you know so the other thing that amazes me is you can even take a shot that you took with your iphone and throw it in there and it oftentimes stands up to you know an image that we shoot with our dslrs missy did yeah. a book for a granddad of nothing but he's 90 what 95 years old and he loves looking at wildlife pictures and just wildlife excursions and so missy put together a book with nothing but iphone pictures and you would have never ever guessed that an iphone <laughs> can do that that kind of quality so yeah, that's yeah. such an awesome tip. I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you put that out there. I think you should do that one again in November. Yeah. yeah. I think we should keep that on the radar because that is one of the – you're right, with the sales and then just that time of year where you can actually gather everything from that whole year, that's that's an awesome, awesome tip. Print an extra one. Give it to your mom for Christmas because she's your biggest fan. <laughs> you know, and she probably is listening because now that I'm a part of the show and that, um, you're right, I will do that moving forward, Ron. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I need to do that myself. Yeah, yeah, I've met your mom, Ron. She would very much appreciate that. Yeah. My pro tip is, uh, and I don't know what made me think of this, but every year, this time of year, I start thinking about passes. So I try to get a state parks pass and I try to get a national parks pass and 
some other types of things where what I'm trying to do is support the place where I'm shooting. You know, it's something in, in an effort to give back. I checked because I thought this would be a good pro tip just to put it on people's radar. You can buy it online. So you can just go to, I don't even know where I went. We'll put a link in the show notes, but go right to that link and order it up. Now you can't, they don't give you a digital receipt and they don't give you a digital copy of your pass. You actually have to wait for a pass to show up in the mail. So you want to do this ahead of schedule. You don't want to say, oh, I'm going to go to Rocky National Park tomorrow. I'm going to do it tonight. That doesn't work. You have to be, that's why I thought it'd be a good, uh, something good to put out now because it'll give you, they said take, allow a couple of weeks for it to show up. But you might as well. And then the parks pass, I'm always buying the parks. It's required, number one. You know, you can drive through a park, a state park in Colorado, and you probably don't have a pass if you go early in the morning or something. But if you're going in the middle of the day, they're, they're going to stop you at a gate anyways. So you might as well just buy a pass for that. And I do that online. And in Alaska, they have any state park that you're gonna, where you're going to park your vehicle, you have to have a pass on the window. And the way I look at it is it's just funding something that I'm using. Which leads me into the other thing. In Colorado, and I thought this would be a good topic to talk about, so many of us photographers, we go out and we use all these resources, but we don't get a chance, or I guess if you compare it to like a hunter or a fisherman. When a hunter or a fisherman buys a license to go out and use the resource, that money for their license is going to support wildlife management in some way. So they're actually funding all of this wildlife management. So in Colorado, you buy a fishing license, you're going to fund a lot of the wildlife management operations for fishing, which isn't just fishing. A lot of it's shorebirds, a lot of it's uh, dippers. I mean, just whatever is in that riparian ecosystem, some of that money will be used for that. The hunters, it's all for the big game, but it's not always big game too, because a lot of times they have to study other populations like predators and things like that. So that money goes into do a certain portion of that money will go into that. What we have here in Colorado, and I'm not sure about all the other states, but we have what's called a habitat stamp. And if you're going to buy a fishing license or a hunting license in Colorado, you have to buy that habitat stamp. It's just something you have to do. I think it's $10 for this stamp per year. Or you can buy a lifetime stamp for 300 bucks. I think it's just something that if you're not a hunter or a fisherman, it would be cool to give back Support your state in any way that you can. And when I went to do a little research to see if anybody could buy a habitat stamp, I was almost sure that you could. But I thought, well, before I start talking about it, I better go look. You can go right to the Division of Wildlife website and buy that habitat stamp. But in addition to that, they also have a donate button. So you don't even have to buy the stamp. You could just say, hey. And I clicked on the button, and basically all it is is a line with just you can put in the amount you want to donate, and you hit donate. And I'm, I didn't do that part of it but I'm sure it probably just goes to a credit card processing thing and, and, and you're one and done, so to speak. So I'm not sure what it's like in Wyoming and I'm not sure what it's like in Utah, but I would assume there's some way that all of us that use these resources have a way to pay into that wildlife management organization in that state to help support what we do and give yeah. them the tools that they need to to keep it going forward. And in, in Wyoming, I'd encourage you to buy a conservation stamp and a habitat stamp. Habitat is specifically for habitat. It's, you know, prescribed burns, um, any mitigation projects that they're doing. So like if they're changing a waterway or anything like that, they'll, they'll mitigate by 
providing habitat for fisheries in different areas, that kind of thing. So anything like that, any habitat project is supported by that habitat stamp. And then the conservation stamp goes to fund wildlife research, um, wildlife projects throughout the state. And above and beyond that, yeah, I know Jason was going to talk about something else, so I'll let him. I don't want to steal his thunder, but I'm going to fully agree. Before he says it, I'm going to fully agree with what he's about to say. <laughs> oh, now i now I got to remember what I was going to say. <laughs> Pressure's on. <laughs> yeah. No. No, so in Utah, you know, we don't have the conservation stamps. Um, I think there's some upland stamps and some things like that if you're hunting birds and things of that nature. But you don't have to be a hunter to buy a hunting license or a fisherman to buy a fisher license. Just just you can go buy a license and support that. That money goes back to support the, the DNR folks and the folks that are out there um, doing the work on the ground for conservation. Um, you know, another way to support those um, efforts is to support your local, or not just your local chapter, but any chapter. It could be RMEF, it could be um, any of the conservation groups, Ducks Unlimited. It, it could be supporting the National Turkey Federation, it could be, or the Wild Turkey Federation, um, any of the organizations, um, Mule Deer Foundation, so on and so forth. Um, another thing you can do, in my opinion, is buy a duck stamp. And I don't know how many of the folks on here follow Sam Solholt, but Sam Solholt has a big um, initiative that he pushes and he's actually doing it. He did the public land bus this last this year. He's doing a public land van and it's kind of fun to watch him do that, which is all supporting our public lands, which is a big thing that we benefit from as photographers as well. And, um, you know, supporting any of his efforts through the public land tees or his website or um, buying a stamp through his efforts every year. Now he's started a thing where he's, you know, trying to push um, buying duck stamps to support waterfowl conservation. Um, any of those things. I mean, if you've got kids that, you know, that they like to collect things or whatever, you know, have them start buying them each a stamp every year as part of their Christmas gift or whatever, um, or birthday gifts and help them, you know, get a book going and create, you know, let them collect duck stamps, for example. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can do this. And, I think a lot of times we forget as photographers only that hunting and hunters are really what support conservation in this country. And our conservation model is the envy of the world. Um, we have a lot of resources that we enjoy and our public lands are the envy of, of the world. Um, that's something that I think a lot of us take for granted. And we all need to be doing our part to support those initiatives and support those groups like backcountry back hunters and anglers and the, some of these other organizations that are fighting for our public lands and for the right that we have to access them and to enjoy them in whatever means it might be, whether it's photography, backpacking, four-wheeling, hiking, you name it, everybody enjoys the benefits of those. So we all, in my opinion, should be um, contributing to that in some way, shape, or form. Sorry, I'll get off my pedestal. No, I think you should stay on your pedestal because, you know, the thing is, is if we get the word out and you get people, and I know that the hunters and the fishermen, they, those little groups, they're all very uh prolific in supporting that kind of stuff and they are all into it i'm just not sure and i don't hear very much about photographers talking about the sort of thing whether it's a nampa meeting where it gets talked about it might i haven't been to one of those in a long time but you know if if they are that's great if they're not then you know this is a good platform for us to talk about it and it you know it only takes let's say there's five thousand people that listen to this podcast if everybody bought a ten dollar habitat stamp 
that's a pretty good little chunk of change that could help a species out, could help a habitat out, could help a little project out that may not directly benefit you. You know, they could be doing some little shrew in the sand dunes of Colorado. But you know what? It just betters the environment. So to, to, to support that, I'm all for it. Now, one thing that you said, Jason, and I just wanted to bring up the difference here in Colorado as, a far, as opposed to Utah, because just depending on where you're listening at and just the different regulations in every state. So in Colorado, you can't buy a hunting license unless you have a hunter safety card. So what I recommend here in Colorado is just buy a fishing license. Even if you don't fish, you could go buy, I don't even know what they cost, 25 bucks. I, I should have checked that out, but we'll put it in the link in the show notes. But let's say you spend $30 for an annual fishing license. You know, and if you don't fish, that's cool. That's just a $30 donation to the Division of Wildlife here in Colorado that gives them the opportunity to have some funds to help manage that sort of thing. Now, you said earlier, Jason, the RMEF, can you just say what that is? Because I don't think people would know what RMEF, or RMEF is. Yeah, sorry. Let me clarify too. You're right. I didn't, you know, I just said that because it sounded like a good idea, but uh, you cannot buy a hunting permit in Utah without hunter safety as well. That is true. Um, you have to have hunter safety to first. So maybe the right answer to that is to buy, you know, a, a fishing license and, or, you know, buy a duck stamp or something. But so that's a valid point. I think that'd be across the country. Um, but yeah, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is what RMEF stands for. Um, and that's one of my favorite organizations because I love elk, you know, as everybody that knows me knows that I love elk. I spend a lot of time each fall with elk and uh, anything I can do to help be a part of that and to help support conservation of elk um, is something that I'm definitely interested in. And I do the same thing. I support Mule Deer Foundation as well, um, MDF. Um, you know, so, yeah, any of those organizations are going to be, um, uh, you know, a good way to, to support conservation. There's one for sheep, there's one for turkeys, there's one for uh, fish, there's, there's just the backcountry hunters and anglers. I would say mm -hmm. they do as much non-hunting stuff as they do hunting. So, I mean, if you are, you know, if you don't take a stand as far as hunting goes and, and you want to support a good organization, that one would be great to do. And none of these are very expensive. It's just taking a little portion of what you can put out there and, and put it into some sort of hands of, of people that are actually out there doing something in, in the habitat or the environment or the state or the whatever. But, and the same goes for the national parks. I mean, last couple of years ago, they were, I know Rocky Mountain National Park was talking about raising the, the fee to some huge, I don't know, it was 150 bucks or 200 80, bucks. $80 for a one-time. Well, that's what it is now. Oh, for a seven-day pass. Yeah. Yeah. And then you, but you yep. can still buy a national pass or still a buy annual, an annual pass. for $80. Yep. And I was all for that because, you know, have you guys been to a national park that where you're just like, oh man, this place is overrun. You go to some of these parks during the prime time, whether it's the fall or it's the okra or it's the flowers blooming in the desert in the, in the springtime, the amount of people, they need funding to, to support that amount of people coming into those areas. So. It's just all a good thing, but you know what I'd like to do is get Sam on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, that would be great. I think he'd be a great guest to talk about the public lands initiative and that. He's such a great advocate for anybody that loves public lands, you know. Yeah, and they talk about it so much. I mean, hunters and anglers are kind of on top of this stuff. And, you know, was it you, Ron, that sent me a message the other day that 
Wasn't there an article in the New York Times where it said the the number it of was, hunters? Uh, Washington Post. Yeah. Washington Post. The number of hunters is dwindling every year. And that is essentially what has kept wildlife management going for so many years. Yeah, but if the those article numbers was actually, are dying, go ahead. Yeah, the article was actually about the impact on funds available for threatened and endangered species work uh, that states are doing across the country. Because hunters, hunter numbers have dropped, you know, the state of Wyoming, the Game and Fish Department is not funded by the state or historically hasn't been funded by the state it's solely been funded by licensed sales and so when you have a decrease in licensed sales that does impact the bottom line and it impacts the number of people that you can get out in the field both doing research and you know carrying out the determinations of prior research whether it be prescribed burn water development um, you know just signage it cuts it cuts into their ability to complete everything that they need to complete. And so it does impact in a direct way wildlife management. So what we're talking about, I think, is a is a great solution to supplementing that and and getting photographers and you know, as photographers, we'd be considered non-consumptive users. That's how we'd be classified by a, a game and fish official. We're not going out there consumptively. We're not taking an animal out of the field, but we're still using the resource, as you guys have talked about. And I don't want to beat a dead horse, but it does give the non-consumptive user an opportunity to play a direct role in conservation and wildlife management. Yep. And I think just let's do that. Let's really work hard to get Sam on this podcast. And Jason, it sounds like you have a relationship with him. And he's been on some other podcasts that I've been involved with. So I think it would be a great uh a great introduction to our audience who may not cross over some of these boundaries like we do on some of these issues. So, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just throw in one more way that I think as a photographer, you can help support conservation? Of course. So, and, I, and this is a hard one because I, I actually get asked a lot and I don't know that that, I just, you know, it's hard. You have to balance this because it does take money out of your pocket. But as a photographer, you may get asked to donate um, a print to banquets and things of that nature. And I try to do that as much as I can. I mean, there's a limit to how much I can do. And I think there's a limit to what any of us can do, but that's in, in that to me, that's an easy way that you can help support a local chapter um, and help support conservation. Yeah. I think if anybody watches your Instagram feed that you do a lot of that, I mean, the amount of money that you know, we're talking about $10 for a habitat stamp, you're talking about putting two, three, four, five hundred dollars into a printing of a print, not to mention the time it took you to go out and take that image and then you're donating it to an organization. You're putting a lot out there. So yeah, I mean and it doesn't have to be a big twenty by thirty. It could be just a nice little, you know, eleven by seventeen that's got a nice little frame on it and you donate it and they sell it at an auction and they take that money and put it towards their cause. So Yeah. Yep. It's a great thing to do, and uh, you you are very, very, very good and prolific at doing that. I think uh, that's something that I can definitely step up and do for sure. Hopefully we don't sound too preachy. I just think it's a good thing to at least put on people's radar and just get the conversation going because we can all do something that helps out. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. Thanks for tuning in.